Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Amy Morin, friend of the podcast, wrote way back in the day, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And she's been through a lot of hard times herself, which she talks about in this podcast and others. Now she's written her latest book in the 13 Things series and this one was directed towards kids but i found it was so insanely useful for me that we talked about basically 13 things people should do including how to take control of your life how to um one thing that was really important was oh well well, let's listen to her talk about it and we talk about all sorts of stories so here's amy morin Yeah, first off, well, I'll just say Amy Warren is guest extraordinaire. How many times have you been on the podcast? Like 10 times and always with something completely new to say. I was going to guess nine, but maybe 10. (laughs) And I've been on your podcast. How's that going? How's your podcast going? Good. So we were the Mentally Strong People podcast, but we partnered with Very Well Mind. They're the biggest mental health site in the world. So now I have the Very Well Mind podcast. And where are you? Um, so first, off, I should mention you first came on for 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And I like that title because of the don't do. Like, uh, can we just talk? Uh, and actually, I want to talk. You have a new book out. We're going to talk about that in a second. But why did you title this 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do? I don't know if I ever asked you that. Like, why not just 13 Things Mentally Strong People Do? Right. That's a great question. When I was at like my low point in life, the last thing I wanted was a to-do list. I already felt overwhelmed and I felt like there were so many things I should be doing. If I had a list of, all right, here's 13 more things I have to do today, I don't think I would have done any of them. I think I already felt like, oh, I have so many things going on. And you know, I wrote the letter originally to myself because I was struggling in life. My mother had died, my husband passed away, my father-in-law was about to pass away. And I just thought, oh, just what do I not have to do today? And so I came up with a list of what not to do because it felt, I guess, more doable. If I just don't do these things, I'll get through the day. I could do that. I just, I couldn't have handled having a a lengthy to-do list. And I wanted to say, let's work smarter, not just work harder. And so many people I would see in my therapy office who had all these really good habits and they were doing all of these things that they were supposed to do, but yet they had one or two bad habits that were counterproductive. And 
And, you know, I was supposed to build on their strengths, tell them what they're doing well and tell them to keep doing more of that. That's what I learned in college. But I thought, you know, if I were going to be a physical fitness trainer and somebody said run on the treadmill, well, that would be great. But I'd be really mad if they didn't tell me to quit eating the jelly donuts on the way to the gym. And so I'd rather just not eat a donut than spend another hour on the treadmill. And I thought mental strength is the same. Rather than telling people you have to do all of this stuff all day, every day, practice gratitude and do this and do that. What if we just said, hey, don't do this one thing and don't do this other thing too. And then the good habits you already have will become a lot more effective. You know, it's such an important point. Don't do negative things as opposed to trying to do more positive things. Before the podcast started, we were talking about how not only is this the greatest pandemic in history, not only is this the greatest economic upheaval in history, but even perhaps most important, this is the greatest mental health crisis in history. Like so many people, what are some statistics that you've been hearing? Like, other than anecdotal, like in terms of depression or even suicide, you know, it's, it's really been horrible what I've just been seeing anecdotally, I, but I don't know the statistics. Yeah, the statistics are pretty grim. Something like 80% of people are struggling with depression or anxiety right now. Stress rates are like 75% higher than normal that uh, we do know suicide rates are up there uh, and that people are struggling in so many ways more than usual. I mean, even right before the pandemic, Mental health statistics were not great, but certainly during the pandemic, it seems like so many more people are stressed out, depressed, and anxious. And interestingly, when we talk about it, we often talk about adults, how adults are depressed, adults are more anxious, but they found that the group that's most likely to be depressed right now is actually uh, 11 to 17-year-olds. We're finding that kids are getting really depressed right now, too. And is that because they're not hanging out with their friends because they're not going, in many cases, not everybody, but in many cases, they're not going to school or there's a lot of uncertainty about school? Exactly. I think that's a huge part of it. Kids feel good because they play sports. They get to go outside. They get to have fun. They can see their friends. And uh, as an adult, I've learned pretty quickly how dreadful it is to sit in front of a Zoom camera all day long. I can't imagine being in the second grade or the fifth grade and you just sit in front of a Zoom camera all day long and try to learn school. And you don't get the fun parts about school. For most of us, you know, we survived math and science class because we had lunch and we had recess and there were some breaks in there where you could talk to your friends. When you take away those positive things, oh boy, that makes for a really long day. And as adults, we have some control over it, right? So I can at least control where I go, who I spend time with. If I want to take a risk, I can. But kids don't get that choice either. So I think for a lot of kids right now, they've lost pretty much any sense of control. Their parents dictate whether you can see your grandparents. It's up to your parents to decide if you get to have a sleepover or if it's safe to to hang out with your friends at all. So for kids who feel like, gosh, I literally can't control anything in my life. I'm just stuck in my bedroom staring at my laptop all day. And then my parents are yelling at me about having too much screen time. What do I do with my life? Yeah, like, you know, it's funny because I feel like the general trend for kids uh, through through the decades, not just today's kids, but through the decades, the general trend is more and more control asserted over them. Like when Robin and I were kids, I got home from school, no one was there, let myself in, I'd eat like 10 bowls of sugary cereal and then I'd jump on my bicycle and, you know, ride wherever I wanted, you know, and come back late at night. Maybe my parents were home, maybe they weren't. You know, Rob was the same thing. I don't know, like you're a, a, a few years younger. Was it the same for you or was there start? Because by the time I, by the time I had kids, I would let my kids go next. I remember one time I let my kids go next door, just literally three feet away in a totally safe neighborhood in, you know, wherever. And the mom of that 
kid that they were visiting next door called me and said, we don't let our kids go outside unsupervised. And I'm like, you're, I can reach my hand out my window and touch you right now. I see you talking on the phone to me next door. Like that's how far away they were. But it was like, everybody was freaking out. And, and now it's with COVID. Now you can't even, now you need the government's permission to go outside, let alone your parents and your schools. Yeah, I think that's it exactly. And when I was a kid, same thing. I came home from school. I was home alone. I did whatever I wanted. And my parents didn't even lock the door. So it was like, just walk in whenever you want. You leave whenever you want. And there weren't a lot of rules about that. And now my friends who have kids, it's a big deal about the first time you're going to leave them home alone and your kid better have his cell phone in his pocket at all times and you have to check on them constantly. And we like to think, well, gee, the world is scarier. The world's changed. We have to be like this. But statistics usually show the opposite, that the chances of your kids getting, I don't know, kidnapped is actually lower now than it was before. Or the chances that your kids are going to encounter something horrible as they walk next door to their neighbor's house is pretty low. But yet there's so much pressure on parents about can't leave your kids home alone. You can't allow them to do to do these certain things. You can't let them go out and explore. And then we're teaching kids the world is a really scary place. You're not, you're too fragile to do that. And now you can't even go outside and breathe or you're going to get a deadly disease right? Or, or kill your grandma. That's the big phrase. You're going to kill your grandma if you go outside. So it's like kind of scary. And I actually want to get back to the, the, what you said about your title, about how it's 13 things you, you don't do. A lot of times people talk about investing, like investing is always a popular topic and people say, well, what stock should I buy? what strategy should I employ so I can make millions in six months? And what most people don't realize, and this is true not only for investing, but sports, games, career, so many things. We know the rewards are there. We know that if you are a decent investor and you stick with it over the long haul, you'll make money, maybe even wealth. We know that if you have a career and you're persistent and you're good and you work hard, that over the long haul, you know, luck becomes less and less of a factor and you'll make money and you'll have a successful career. And so the rewards are, are kind of easy on these things. That's why these, that's why investing exists. And it's so popular. That's why people have careers because they know there's rewards there, but so little, so little time is spent on what we shouldn't do. In other words, when you, when you invest, people focus on the rewards and they don't even focus on the risks even in career or, or in marriage or in or friendships, we focus on the rewards, but not the risks we're taking. And the risks are huge when you have a new relationship or, or, or friendship or, or marriage or new job. And, and it's the 13 things people shouldn't do or don't do, mentally strong people don't do, that that's kind of mitigating the risks as opposed, like, yes, you, you mentioned when we were talking, uh, maybe it was, oh yeah, we were just like, you said, oh yeah, one of the things you should do is be grateful. We all know that. That's kind of a cliche even. And we all know the rewards are there when we do these positive things. But often we don't know where the risks are in our mental health or where the risks are in our career. And kind of focusing on those and mitigating them, like investing, it's obvious. But I think, you know, in every other aspect of life, I always say like, the, if you want to win the game, you have to stay in the game. And that's by avoiding the bad things, avoiding the risks, as opposed to just focusing on the rewards. That's just it. And I wonder if that was your approach in all these books. It was because I'd see people come into my therapy office and they'd say, okay, well, I wrote three things in my gratitude journal this week and it didn't change my life. So then we'd say, okay, well, what did you, what else did you do? Well, I spent, you know, 15 hours a day on social media or scrolling through the news. 
great. Well, three things written down in your gratitude journal doesn't undo those 15 hours of staring at your at your smartphone all day. Or people who would say things like, uh, you know, I, I didn't get up off the couch. I didn't go to the gym this week. And, uh, you know, I but I did eat my vegetables. Well, okay, well, that's great. You ate some vegetables. But what else did you eat? Well, I also ate 17 jelly donuts. Okay, well, they were just focused on the fact that they ate vegetables. I wanted to say, if you just quit eating the jelly donuts, then you're going to see a lot better progress. And then you might feel good enough to actually go to the gym. So when it came to building mental strength, I just wanted people to know, it doesn't matter how many good habits you have. Sometimes it's easier to just say, what's the worst habit I have and cut that one out. And as you say, that there is a risk involved in a lot of things we don't even look at. So when somebody says to me, my new year's resolution is to go to the gym, they're thinking I'm going to be in shape. I'm going to look really good. What they forget to look at is what they have to give up. Maybe you have to give up an hour of watching your favorite TV show, or you have to give up an hour with your family or an hour of something else. And because people forget about that, then it's one of the big reasons why New Year's resolutions don't work. You have to also look at what do I need to give up in my life in order to make this good thing happen? By the way, full disclosure, uh, speaking of working out in the gym, your physical, your personal trainer coincidentally is the same as our personal trainer, even though you were in Florida and, and we were in New York. And uh, uh, we ended up watching an extra hour or two of TV and slowly declining on the personal training. <laughs> and you stuck with it and you're in great shape. Although something tells me you're obsessed with jelly donuts because you've mentioned it several times. So maybe you're eager to get back to some bad eating habits. But um, so your latest book is, and I have a problem with, with the title actually, even though I love all the titles, 13 Things Strong Kids. Um, wait, let me make sure I get it right because I always forget titles at the end when I'm about to say them, but I remember thinking about your title, 13 things strong kids do. And you also have a subtitle, think big, feel good, act brave. So you didn't do the don't do, but that that's fine. But obviously, you know, before we get into the content of this book, and by the way, this book is 100% for adults. Like I know on Amazon, it says for eight to 12 year olds, I read this book and I got just as much value out of it as your very first book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, because I kept thinking to myself, man, I act like a little kid all the time and I'm doing all the bad things that Amy just said. I should start. I think there's such great advice in here for adults. I don't even know if if it's for kids really, but um, obviously, so but I want to talk about the business of, of writing for a second. Like obviously you're building this this franchise of 13 Things you know, mentally strong people do, mentally strong women do, 13 things strong kids do. You could you could apply this to fields and business, you know, 13 things mentally strong CEOs do, or I don't know, 13 things successful people don't do. Um, so you you have a long way to go. This is like the um uh uh the don't sweat the small stuff franchise. I feel like this could turn into that where first it's like for parents, for kids, for women, for men, but then it kind of goes career by career. So don't sweat the small stuff for dentists and and on and on. So are you thinking franchise? Obviously you are. Well, yeah, I guess that's how I always come up with my next book is sort of what my readers ask for. And I listen to them. So when they asked for the parenting book, I said, great. And when they said, you know, when women kept reaching out to me, I thought, yeah, let's do the women's book. And for a long time, people have been asking me about a kid's book. So that's next. I don't know what's next after the kid's book, but um, we'll see. You know what I would be interesting, I would like to know is 13 things mentally strong competitors don't do or athletes or something like that. Like what separates out 
someone who is competing against other people who are almost as good as them, but it's that we always know at the very highest levels of competition. And again, whether it's business, sports, games, whatever it is people are competitive on, we always know that the final one-tenth of 1% is all mental. Like, and right. I bet that would be really strong thing to, to study because there's no real conclusion on that. And it would be interesting to understand. You're so smart about this stuff. It'd be understand, interesting to have your take on it. And um, I was thinking of another one, but, 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 oh, but the other thing I was going to ask you, and then we really will get to your latest book, but you know, you, you say you, this is what people are asking you to write about, but I remember this interview that Howard Stern did with Jerry Seinfeld and Howard Stern said to Jerry Seinfeld, um, you know, a hundred million people, Jerry, were asking you to do a 10th season of Seinfeld. Why didn't you do it? All the, all the, the people were asking you to do it. And Seinfeld said, Howard, those hundred million people are not in show business and I created the most successful show ever. So why would I listen to them when deciding my next step? Uh, they're the ones that don't know show business. I'm the one who's the expert. So why should I just listen to, why would I let them dictate what I'm going to do? And, but, but yet the way you describe it, like, why not, right? If all the women are asking you to write a version of your book for them, why not do that? It seems like, you know, that there's demand, you know, that there's readers, you know, you could do a good job on it. So where I, I'm, I, I don't really know. I just bring that up as an interesting counter example, but what obviously, well, what do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, no, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that statement too. And before I write a book, I guess I don't want to just keep writing spinoffs that are basically the the same thing over and over again. I just want to make sure that there's some research behind it, things I can talk about, real life case studies. So I certainly take all the feedback I get with a grain of salt before I make the ultimate decision of which book should be next. But I'm glad that you think the kids book is valuable for adults. That was one of my hopes in writing it is I thought, I think adults can get quite a bit out of this because it's similar exercises, similar things that I talk about in my adult books. It's just in a simpler, kid-friendly manner. And don't forget to tell me why you don't like the title, because I do want to hear that. Oh, no, it's not that I don't like the title. Is that, oh, oh, I didn't like the title because I feel like people are only going to um, buy this for their kids. Okay. <laughs> or, first off, because kids are not going to buy it, right? Kids, are, kids don't go to the store and say, hmm, I need kind of a self-help book, uh, they don't like ask the sales clerk at Barnes and Noble, can you point me to the kids self-help section? Like no kid asks for that. Right. So, so like clearly it's going to be the kind of people who bought um, high, the seven highly effective habits for teenagers are going to buy this. It's for their kids. And some of those kids will read it and some of the parents will read it and it'll do well. But um, I, I wonder what, if, if you really wanted kids to buy it or if you really you know, like, like, you know, what was a book for adults, but had a similar type of topic was, uh, that everything I needed to learn about life. I learned in kindergarten. I think that was the title by Robert F U L G H U M. I forget how to say his last name. And it's like these basic messages you learn in kindergarten, but actually are incredibly useful for, for living a good, simple, happy adult life. And I feel that that's what this book reminded me of. And, and again, I'm not saying this to downplay it, actually, I think this was great. Like this, like, like there was like, even in, I forget which chapter, maybe the first or second, um, you have this one concept, which I really think is happens to adults all the time. It happens to me all the time that when there's a situation that goes bad for me, I broaden it out. And like, let's say I don't get invited to a party and I get sad about it. 
I, I do have a tendency to broaden out and say, I'm never going to get invited to a party. Or let's, let's say I'm day trading and I have a bad day. I've lost, I, I start thinking, I've lost all my skills as an investor. I am never going to make money again as a day trader. Like there's such a tendency for me and maybe for many adults to broaden out a sad or, or depressing situation. I didn't even realize this is something kids do until I read it in your book, but I know this is something uh, uh, adults do. And so there's so many things like that in this book that, you know, I, I think are, are so important for adults and are so basic to things we get wrong mentally or mental health wise. Oh, I'm so glad that you like that because I feel like the same way. We talk so much about emotional intelligence and people are like, oh, you have to know what everybody else is thinking and recognize their feelings. But truth be told, I'll be giving a talk to these high level executives and I'll give them 30 seconds to write down all the feeling words they can in 30 seconds. And they usually come up with about five words. Yeah, happy, sad, mad, scared, and maybe anxious. But beyond that, like we don't really talk about feelings. We don't really think about the way that we're thinking. And so I just really wanted to take this book way back to the basics thinking, okay, what are some easy ways to start recognizing how you think and how some of your thoughts might not always be true? And that's a really common thinking error that we all do. And I still do it to this day, but now I have the skills and tools to catch myself when I do it and to replace those thoughts with something that's healthier. Yeah, and I like that point of, is this thing that I'm broadening out or is this assumption I'm making asking the question, is this true? So, you know, Byron Katie is a writer who famously, um, always challenges people in her seminars to, to ask what you're thinking. Is it true? And I think that's such an important point again for adults. Like, um, you know, if someone's at the job and says, Oh, my boss doesn't like me, I'm never going to get promoted. Is that really true, what you're saying? And is it really true that you'll be happier if you're promoted? Like asking that all the time is, is so valuable. I never even thought about it in the context of kids. You know, you have examples in the book, but obviously the basic one is if you're not invited to sit with the kids at the cool kids table, do they not like you? Is that really true? But also asking, are they really the cool kids? And then you have an example where uh, you have a kid who was about to sit with his friends, but then he realized he was never really happy sitting with his friends. So he sits with new people. He has tries new experiences. So like, is it true that they're your friends and that you'd be happier sitting with them as opposed to other kids? Right. And that's what I wanted was for kids to figure out how do you question what you think? Most of the thoughts you have are probably not true. We have all these assumptions. We draw conclusions. We connect the dots backwards and then come up with, yeah, oh, that's why that happened because nobody likes me or because I'm not smart enough. But so often the thoughts we have aren't even accurate, which is why I talk about the example of talk to yourself like you would a friend. Most kids are way kinder to other kids than they are themselves. They're really quick to say to their friend, oh, it's okay, you can do better next time or just try again or it's not that bad. Yet to themselves, like most of us, and this is true for adults too, we'll call ourselves names like, oh, you idiot, you, you never do anything right or you can't possibly do this. So we just learn to talk to ourselves the same. That just happened to me 15 minutes ago. Right? I mean... I do it to myself too. But if we learn, how do you talk to yourself like a friend? You'll be so much better off when you, I mean, every study shows self-compassion is way better than harsh self-criticism. Is it possible? Like, let's say you're just depressed and you think you're an idiot and you did something wrong. Like, you know, for me, I've gone broke a whole bunch of times and I certainly thought I was an idiot then. And it was, it was hard to not talk down to myself. It was like part of my being to talk down about myself. When people have depression or anxiety, their brain is going to constantly say things that just aren't true. 
And it's almost like they have to accept, I can't trust my brain right now, that the depression is going to make me think things that are completely inaccurate. So it's more like you have to trust somebody else sometimes to know I'm not thinking clearly, but maybe this other person is. For example, when somebody's depressed and they have the option of therapy or medication, anything that might make them feel better, their depression will say, this isn't going to work. There's no use in trying. You'll probably get worse. You don't have the energy to do it. But maybe a friend or a family member can say, that's your depression talking, but here's why I think you should try it anyway. And it's almost like they then have to trust my brain's not working, but I'll trust your brain right now. And that becomes one of the biggest complications when it comes to treating mental illness is people have to be willing to accept that, yeah, my brain's not trustworthy right now, but I do have somebody else in my life who can give me guidance that I can trust. How do kids even know that they should find someone to talk to about these things and that they should trust to give them advice during depression. Like kids are experiencing it for the first time. They don't even really know what it is, maybe. That's just it. And parents often don't recognize it. The amount of depression and anxiety that goes untreated in kids because we expect it to look like it does in adults. Adults who are depressed are kind of sad. We don't have much energy. Sometimes depressed kids, they usually look much more irritable than anything else. And we think, well, you're supposed to be irritable when you're 14 or 15. But depressed kids are really irritable. They struggle with almost anything. They're the ones that will say things out loud like, oh, you know, there's no sense in trying. I'll never be like that. Or I don't care. They struggle to get started on new projects. And it's amazing, though, how many kids, as a, when I was working as a therapist, how many teenagers or how many young kids asked to see me? They would ask their parents, can I talk to someone? Because they heard that their friends were talking to someone. And it was the kids that sort of initiated that. And I always encourage parents, if your kid asks to talk to a therapist, by all means, I really hope that you do it. Um, because I think the awareness is spreading out there and kids know, all right, there's somebody to talk to. But that's why I made one of the first exercises in the book about coming up with five grownups that you can talk to. Because mm. for, for so many kids, maybe it's not mom or it's not dad that you can go to, but maybe you have a coach, a family member, uh, you know, your aunt, or maybe it's your friend's mom that you know that you can trust. And for parents to know that too, that just because your kid doesn't come to you with everything doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem. They might just be more comfortable opening up to somebody else. Yeah. I, I wish I had known this as a, as a kid, really. Um, I just kept everything bottled in. And I, I asked Robin to, to sit with me here because her kids dealt with the death of their father and were, and then they had to move from they were living overseas for 15 years. And after their father died, uh, they all had to move to New York, which is a pretty, in, in the United States, is their first time growing up in the United States. And they were depressed. Like, Robin, what did you do to help them kind of get through their anxiety and depression? Well, I did find somebody for them to talk to. I think it was really important. I mean, I was there, um, but, uh, uh, it's what Amy's talking about. It's really important for them to be able to talk to somebody else besides their parents because my kids do talk to me, but it it's also really healthy for them to talk to somebody else too because they can open up, I think, and not feel judged maybe. I don't know. I think I think kids just feel judged by their parents. Also, maybe, they, to do that to maybe they're judging too. Like maybe they're judging you in some way. It's just- They don't uh, know how to talk to you about it. Right, because I'm, I'm, I'm a parent, so- but my kids still go through therapy, you know, once a week. So that's, it's a, a very healthy thing, I think, for kids. And 
I'm glad to hear you say that because when I've worked with kids sometimes and, and they've lost a parent, they're afraid to go to the other parent because they're like, I don't want to make you sad. I don't want to burden you with the things I'm going through. That's right. And That's it's like exactly. everybody's going through grief. Everybody's journey looks a little bit different. Their experience is different. But sometimes it's hard to just say, I'm going to open up and tell you everything until I'm, until I'm working it out with somebody else too. And Right. And I mean, during that whole time, I mean, I'm trying to stay strong. I mean, it, it happened when they were you know, I think there there were like 12, 14 and 15 when he passed away. So those are really difficult ages to begin with. And and then it was such a quick, you know, within 30 days, uh, he passed away from his diagnosis. So it was just such a quick, something that happened so fast that I was trying to actually survive and calculate and trying to figure out what am I doing? What am I going to do? You know, so trying to be strong for the family, for me and the kids was really difficult. Um, but in the inside, I was just a mess, but I was trying to stay strong to try to help them. So they didn't see me as breaking down, but I did. I mean, so it was, I don't know if I did it right, but they did see grief. I guess it was good that they saw grief from me as well. And yeah, it's, it was a very difficult time, but I can imagine. And for, I think you're you're right for the kids to see that you grieve. I've had some kids that come in and they'll say like, you know, we lost somebody in the family, but so-and-so doesn't care because I never saw them cry. So then the kids think if I cry, then it's, then it's wrong or they don't, I mean, there's no handbook on how to grieve. And obviously I lost my husband too, as an adult, I didn't really know what to do or what it was supposed to look like and what the timeline is and when you're supposed to, you know, be happy again, or you're not supposed to be happy. There's so such a difficult time. I mean, but, and as parents too, we tried to, I mean, I was such a helicopter mom. I didn't want my kids to feel any pain or, you know, anger or, you know, I was always there, you know, to like save them. And when, when, when Peter passed away, when he was passing away, I mean, he was in hospice in our home and it was just front and center. I mean, they were there when he died, you know, it was just, just something I couldn't, I couldn't protect them from that pain. I mean, it was just like I had to just totally just give up my helicopter mom position and just let it all just go. And then from that point is when I sort of, I stopped being a helicopter mom because I figure, you know, if they've gone through this sort of, uh, I mean, I think that's probably one of the worst things that uh, kids can go through is is to lose a, a parent at that age, you know, and um, I figure, well, they've gone through that. And so it's going to make them stronger and they're going to be able to deal with other things that come up in life. But it was just the most, it was so hard because I couldn't fix it. I just couldn't fix it. Yeah, exactly. And like you say, we want to protect kids from even the small hurts. And so then to face this suddenly, this large one, and it happened so fast and to not be able to, to protect them from it, but you have to let them go through it. Right. Yeah. And you know, um, I think what you're, the exercise of writing down five people you could talk to who are a positive influence in your life and you feel you could trust what they say. I mean, you might not be accurate about all five, but let's just say you, you, you make pretty good choices. I think that's a pretty good exercise to do in advance of needing it because then you, you, you wrote the list when you had a clear head and, and, you know, again, I wish I had done that as a kid. I, like I didn't have a similar experience to Robin's 
Robin or her kids, but my dad had a, a nervous breakdown, they called it, or a mental health breakdown, some form of breakdown that basically lasted for the remainder of his life when he, when he was kind of my age now, he had this breakdown. And it scared the hell out of me. I actually think it's probably pretty good to protect your kids from grief and all these things. Because once I saw the, the crack in the structure, it was really devastating to me. I can imagine, you know, and I think, right, finding that a balance between when we can protect kids from adult issues, because I've seen the other end of the spectrum where parents burden their kids with adult issues and let them know like, oh, mom and dad are having some struggles behind the scenes and kids, their anxiety shoots up. They don't necessarily need to know everything. So to find that balance between uh, allowing them to be kids, but also on the other hand, to making sure that they have enough uh, skills that they can get through life once they leave the house. But I'm definitely not a fan of saying, let's expose them to hardship just to toughen them up. That doesn't work either. The world is tough enough. So I don't think we need to force difficult experiences on kids. I've had parents that have thought that too. If I just let them throw them to the wolves, essentially, then somehow my kids will learn the skills. But that's not necessarily true. I mean, we could do a lot of damage. We need to make sure that kids have plenty of guidance and support when they're going through tough times too. And, and that's where communication comes in too, I think, being close to your kids and really tapping into them because uh, when you do go through something difficult, because you don't want to create a fairy tale for them, like if, oh, wow, my parents, they never argue or, oh, the, it's perfect. So that's what I'm looking for. And that's not real life. I mean, so I feel like if you do expose them to some of these just real life situations, but you also give that, give the um, the explanation or you, you, you communicate with them about what's happening, it does protect kids because they're able to understand it better. I mean, I, that's just my theory. I, I don't know. As a parent, I feel it's worked a little bit for me to and, do that. And again, like this is great for kids and it's insanely valuable for how we should treat our kids and raise our kids, but this is insanely valuable for adults. And you mentioned earlier, like how it's focusing on the basics, but often when you learn a skill, you have to focus on the basics first. Like Kurt Vonnegut, who's a, a well-known writer, famously said, before you start experimenting with your fiction, learn the rules of grammar. It's like, focus on the basics before you get, before you become great and you have to build the foundation. And this, just like having a list of people outside of your normal circle that you can trust and talk to is important or, or learning how to label your words or thoughts when you're broadening something. So, you know, even though you want to say, like, I find when I want to say, I'm never going to be good at this. It's hard to say that this is my depression talking, but if I identify in advance that, listen, I have, at the very least need to label, I don't care that it's my depression talking, but I just have to label it and know that that's what's happening. Cause you don't care really when it's your depression talking when you're depressed. That's a great point because so often we think, oh, I'll work on my mental health when I have a mental health problem. That's the worst time to attempt to tackle it. If we just built it into our everyday lives, so you have the skills and the tools and the things that you need, then you're in a much better place to say, all right, well, how do I draw upon those? Just like if you wait until you have a serious health issue and then decide you're going to get in shape, it's much harder to do it because you may not be physically able to work out. You might not be able to to change your diet as easily as if you just did it all along. So I think if we just start teaching kids now, here's some really basic skills and tools that you'll have for the rest of your life. And then when you encounter problems, because 
it's clear just because you read the book doesn't mean you're going to be free of problems in life. But when you encounter problems, maybe you'll have some things to draw upon, some strategies that you can use so that you don't just feel like you have to wait it out. So, okay, I'll wait till this passes. Or maybe everybody feels depressed all the time, so I won't get any help. Instead, I want kids to know this is, this is okay. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to, to get the things I need. And I have some skills. I want them to be confident that they do have some tools in their toolbox that they can reach for when they are struggling. And, and there's a couple of chapters, which again, I want to, I want to even focus on the adult side of this, but the kids, um, know how, you know, I'll, I'll read the chapter titles. Uh, they, they focus on the things that they have control over. And then there's another chapter, they empower themselves. And I think this is really important too. Like, I think a lot of times, uh, I know when I was a kid, I would do anything to have the other kids like me. <laughs> And I didn't really empower myself. And I, and I had a hard time um, doing the things that I have control over, particularly when I was anxious or, or stressed. So you, you gave really good exercises and tips there. But again, I kept thinking of it in terms of being an adult, like, oh, this is what I've been doing when it's worked out for me. It's just, you know, it's great to put a, a, a label to it like you do and, and to, you know, to think about these things before the situation requires it. But like, what do you mean for a kid to focus on the things they have control over, particularly now when they, when even we as adults have control over fewer and fewer things in our lives, it seems. Right. So I think it's more important than ever for kids to just identify, well, what can I control? And maybe it's uh, who I talk to on a, on a Zoom call. If I can't, if mom or dad doesn't allow me to go on a, to go out with my friends, then who am I going to talk to? Or how am I going to spend my time? Are there things I can learn about? Can I read a book? Can I learn a new hobby? Um, rather than thinking this isn't fair, my life is awful, I can't do all of these other things. Or uh, sometimes kids put, I mean, we do it as adults too, we put our effort and our energy in the wrong thing. We worry about what our friends are doing rather than worrying about what we're doing. Or we worry about uh, you know, what's going to happen next or what mom or dad's going to say about something rather than thinking, well, what can I do? How do I show them that I'm responsible? Or how do I uh, do make the best of my time that I can? And sometimes when we lose control over certain things, you, the only thing you can focus on is what's my, how much effort do I put in? What's my attitude and what's my behavior going to be today? Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, 
While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. 
Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. All of these things, again, I feel like they're almost chapters in, in books for adults. Like they know when to say no. They take calculated risks. I love that title, they take calculated risks when applying it to a kid. It's like there's some Machiavellian, hmm, if I take this risk here, maybe I can manipulate the teacher into giving me a good grade. <laughs> if I give her well, an apple. Exactly. And for kids, we don't teach them how to calculate risks. And yet we get mad at them when they do certain things. Like your kid, you know, does a stunt on his bike and we think, oh, how could you be so stupid? Of course, you're going to break your arm. Yet when they're scared to give a speech in front of their class, we're like, what are you worried about? Get up there and do it. And for kids to be able to learn, there's lots of different kinds of risks and they can calculate the risk and that the risk isn't necessarily equivalent to the level of fear that they have. Some things might feel scarier than, than they need to be and other things might not feel scary at all when our parents wish we were a little more afraid of them. And, and, you know, and then you have this um, chapter, they know when to say no. And that's interesting because kids, I know even as adults, I'm afraid to say no very often. Like someone says, hey, can you speak at this conference? I'll say yes. And then two days before the conference, sometimes, unfortunately, I say no. And uh, a kid probably feels overwhelmed at a point when, you know, it's the same thing as like they, they focus on the things they have control over. They probably don't realize how much control they have over the word no, particularly when it comes to adults and parents and authority figures. Right. And I that, think that's true when they become adults, too. I think parents think kids say no too much because you say, do your homework, no, or you ask them to do something and they just ignore you, but they don't actually come out and say no. But it's so important for kids to know that they can say no. When your friend says, can I copy your homework? We want them to be able to say no. Or when somebody else uh, asks you to do a favor and you don't want to do it, we want them to learn, it's okay to say no, thank you. Or no, I don't want to come over to your house. Or no, I don't want to go do that today. And they don't necessarily need an excuse, but they can deliver a, a polite no sometimes and stand up for themselves. How should a kid say no? So let's say the bully says, hey, can I copy your notes? How should they say no? It could be as simple as no, I'm not doing that or uh, an easy I'll way kick to- kick your ass if you don't let me steal your notes. <laughs> do it well again, then maybe you decide it's where the calculated risk comes in. <laughs> Let them copy my homework. But for kids to know that they don't have to be that they don't have to be victims. I hear so many teenagers, especially, who will say things like, "Oh, my friend made me do this," or "I have to go do that." No, you don't have to. You can say no. There's so many things you can say no to, and you can do it in a way that still makes you a polite person. But so many kids, I think, don't want to be uh, don't want to come across as selfish or rude. Or we teach them that you always have to do favors, and then they forget that they don't that they have the power to say no and, and set some healthy boundaries for themselves. And you know what, if they learn these things as kids, this is why this parents should get this for their kids in addition to for themselves, because if kids do learn these lessons early on, it's, I, I wish someone had told me any of these things when I was like 13 years old. I mean, I was the type of kid who would bring in a bag of chocolates every day and hand them out until someone finally pointed out to me, Hey, James is buying people to like him. <laughs> And, you know, I was so, such a pathetic kid and that uh, translated into being a pathetic adult much of the time. And, uh, you know, but there's one chapter in particular 
which I think I notice this so much when I see adults do it. And I can't even imagine how powerful it must be for a kid to do it. But the chapter is they celebrate other people's successes. This is so rare, even as an adult. And I always try to remember this and make a conscious effort to celebrate people's successes and to remind myself how important it is not only for the people you're celebrating, but for yourself and your own mental health. But it's particularly great if you could learn this as a kid, like not to be jealous, yeah. not to fear, have fear of missing out on their opportunities, you know, to know that if they can succeed, then that's hope for me to succeed. Right. But so often kids will think, oh, so-and-so got an A on the test. That means I'm stupid if I got a B. And then rather being able to be happy for your friend who got the A, we get angry. We think, well, they didn't deserve that or they're, they're stupid anyway. And they just cheated on the test. We come up with excuses. Or when somebody else scores more points in the game, we think, ah, oh, they're a ball hog. Or we just come up with all of these things instead of focusing on, that's really good that that person did it. And it doesn't necessarily take away my chances of success. It's okay for them to do well. Maybe we can both do well. But when we don't teach that to kids, they get in that mindset of just tearing people down when they do well. And then they grow up to become adults who do the same thing, who scroll through social media, angry at people who seem to be happier or have more things than, than they have. Like, it's so important because I really do notice this when adults do it, because it's still rare for adults. And I'll tell one story that just happened to me last night. I was hitting the different chess Twitch channels, and I hit one that I had never been on before. And there was this guy, and I recognized him, even though he was much older than the last time I saw him. I'm 53 now. I last saw him when I was 18, and we were both playing in the U.S. Junior Open. And I had beaten him. And now he's a strong grandmaster and a professional chess player and whatever. And so I met, I wrote in Twitch on the chat, like, oh, you probably don't remember. We played when we were 18 years old. I didn't even mention in the chat that I had won because I didn't want to seem like I was lording it over him. And the other people in the chat said, hey, Jesse, this guy, you know, James Altucher, he just said he played you when he was, eight, when he was 18. You should go in the chat. And so this guy... Jesse looked and said, oh yeah, I remember, of course I remember playing him when we were 18. It was the U.S. Junior Open and he crushed me. Like, and he described the game almost like move for move and, he, and it was great. And like, and I thought, oh, what a, you know, he did the same thing, by the way, when he lost when he was 18. He showed everybody the game, even though I was the winner. I noticed it then and I noticed it now. Like there's a certain graciousness to that or a certain grace to that, which stands out. I mean, that's a small trivial example, but, but I notice it. And I'm sure you notice it as an author too. Oh yeah, I definitely notice it as an author. When other people are willing to promote your books versus, and as a podcaster when people won't put you on their show or they just are, they're too competitive or they think, you know, we can't have the same similar conversations because we're in the same space rather than sharing the space. Huge. And that happens all the time. And then there's even worse is the people who want to be on your podcast when their book comes out, but then they don't have you on their podcast when, when your own book comes out and that happens all the time because people don't learn these lessons as a kid. And again, if you have a feeling of abundance in life, that the, the more you share and the more you give and the more you help your peers, the, the more abundant you will be. That is such a valuable lesson to learn as a child. And I feel I, I learned it mostly as an adult. I admit I learned that one a little bit as a child because it's just instinctively, you know, that's a good thing, even though it's hard to do. But then the more you do it, the better you are at it. And it's really important. And what were you saying? I was going to say, do, do you think it stems from a confidence, you know, uh, issue? I mean, I feel like if they're insecure or they're, but when you're, when you're confident in yourself and you're content with who you are, 
uh, I feel like, you know, you are happy with other people's successes because I don't know, you're just a happier, more confident person and you want to bring everyone up around you, right? Yes, I think that's exactly it. When people feel insecure, it's almost like somebody else's success is just another emotional injury. Like, oh, it's just more proof I'm not good enough rather than being able to say that person could be good and I can be good too. But when people have self-worth issues, it definitely feels like it's an emotional insult when somebody else does better in some way, shape or form. And you know, it's really hard around the ages of 18 because that's when all these kids are applying for college. And some kids get into Harvard, some kids don't, or you know, whatever is your up, up and down colleges, or some kids don't get in at all, some kids get into every college. How do you, how, how should a kid or an adult deal with it then? Because maybe they really are not good at something that led them to not being accepted to college. Now, I personally think kids have many more opportunities other than going to college, but society still more or less disagrees with that. And kids feel real horrible when they see all their friends getting in places and they don't. So I think that's when it comes in and make sure that you look at other people as a somebody who has skills or an opinion that you could learn from rather than thinking that you're they're your direct competitor. There's research on this too. If you were to scroll through Instagram and you look at somebody that seems to be happier, healthier, wealthier, rather than thinking, oh, I could never be like that, you're much healthier to think, wow, that person has some information, some education, some skills, something that I could learn from. Obviously, that's tough to do when you look at your 18-year-old peers who just got into an Ivy League school and you're looking at community college at best and you're thinking, well, how do I learn from these people? But ultimately, it goes back to just knowing that where you go to college might not, your thoughts about that might not be true. Your thoughts of, oh, if I don't get into Harvard, then somehow I'm a failure in life. Back that up and say, well, is that a fact? Is it possible that if I don't even go to college, I can still be a successful person? Maybe you start questioning that. You start looking at people who didn't go to college who still succeeded and just reminding yourself that maybe your belief that the place you go to college isn't necessarily uh, an accurate view of the world. I mean, this is like all these things you're saying, this is like a great toolkit. And I, I, I said it a million times, so this is the last time I'll say it. This is all obviously really good for, I'm listening to this as me instead of listening to this on behalf of my kids, because obviously it'd be good for my kids but I still am listening to it like this will be good for me now as a 53-year-old dealing with a lot of these things because we all deal with these issues all the time. They're, that's the problem a little bit with some of the self-help industry, which is that you, you think these are the answers, but you have to you have to really do them and, and practice them. It's their mental skills that have to be practiced, which is why uh, you know it's these are things mentally strong people don't do. Like you have to have mental strength to learn not to do them. But one takeaway from this is that all these different tips and ideas, it's almost like someone should, like I see all the time people say, oh, I'm gonna make a personal manifesto or I'm gonna make my code of values or whatever. But it's almost like you should make a negative manifesto. Like here are the things I, I am not going to do in my life. And, and that could be, I've never heard of people talk about a personal manifesto in terms of like the negatives. Everyone's like, oh, I'm going to make my personal manifesto. Always be honest. Always be grateful. Always, you know, do this. But there's a lot of things I, that one shouldn't do, and we kind of forget about that. Oh, I think that would be so wise to make that a manifesto of what not to do. So instead of saying I'm always going to be honest, well, let's face it, most of us lie sometimes. So what if you had that as your manifesto? Don't lie. At the end of the day, you say to yourself, did I lie? Maybe it was a white lie. Maybe it wasn't. But so just remember what's on your not to do list. And if I just avoid these certain things in life, like 
okay, that's kind of like more, feels much more doable than saying, I'm always going to be grateful. I'm always going to do this. I'm always going to do that. No, just don't do these certain things. And then I think you'll feel like you have more success at the end of the day. You know, your, your, your last chapter is called They Persist. Why'd you make that chapter last? And that, that's the chapter I feel like, you know, so the book Grit by Angela Duckworth is a book about mindset and persistence and resilience and so on. And even though it's the, a lot of the research is about adults, there's also a lot about kids. And I think she's more interested in grit as it relates to kids and so on. Um, I feel like this is the chapter that most overlaps with, with her book Grit. Uh, but talk about persistence and why, why'd you make this the last chapter? Yeah, you know, funny, this actually wasn't even the original last chapter and I felt like it was missing from the book. So I went back and I, I swapped some things around and made this the last chapter because- Was that when your editor called you and said, Amy, there's only 12 things in this book? <laughs> it was not. However, <laughs> it was when I was done with the book and I, I reread the whole thing and I thought there has to be something in there more about persistence because- we, it's so easy to give up on things really quickly. And don't get me wrong, I think sometimes we stay stuck in something way longer than we should when a business isn't working out and it's a sinking ship and we stay on board just because we said we were going to start a business. I actually am a fan of people quitting yeah. things and quitting more often. When something's not working, stop it and go do something else. But but for kids in particular, I wanted them to know just because maybe soccer is hard or you're not the best at math right away, that's okay. You can learn and that you can continue working on it. And how do you persist at it? Especially in today's world where kids are so used to getting everything so fast. When I was a kid, we couldn't order anything on Amazon and have it show up on the doorstep right away. But now that's what kids are used to. And so when it comes to fixing their real life problems, they're like, okay, it took two hours and yet my depression's not better or my anxiety's not fixed after one week. What do we do next? And for them to know that if you're really working on self-growth and you're trying to change your life, it's not going to be like an Amazon order. You need to put in time and effort and energy and, and that there are ways to figure out, are you making progress? Because sometimes it happens so slowly that you don't even notice it. So I just wanted to teach kids, you can set goals for yourself. You can track your progress. You can figure out how, how you're doing at it. But your goal doesn't always have to be that you're going to come in first place. Maybe your goal is just you're going to improve on it or you're going to get a little bit better at something so that they don't give up so soon. And, and when should they quit? Uh, you know, I'm a, I think when something doesn't line up with your goals, you might decide this wasn't for me. So I was a pre-med student for one day. And when I got to college, I thought, oh yeah, this is actually, I like the idea of being a doctor, but I have no desire to be a doctor. But I'd spent pretty much my whole life thinking I love the idea of being, was in love with the idea of being a physician. But I think whenever you set out to do something and you think this isn't what I imagined. So maybe somebody says, I'm going to, I'm going to get healthy and I'm going to get in shape. And then they realize in order to make that happen, I have to give up all this time with my family or I have to miss work and it's just not worth it anymore. It's okay to then say, okay, maybe that's actually not what my goal is anymore. I'm not going to do it. Or so many kids want to make the NBA or you want to become a professional something. And the work that it takes to get there, you have no desire to do. So then give up on that. Go do something else that you have the desire to put the effort and the energy into. Yeah, I think I think that's all these lessons are so important. And you have a bunch of other advice in here. So I'll just read some of the chapters. They, you know, they adapt to change, they fail and try again, they own their mistakes, they balance social time with alone time, which is really important. A lot of kids don't realize the importance of having alone time because there's this huge fear of missing out. And you see everybody on social media having fun when you're not with them. 
And so the pressure is more than ever because now you know what everyone's doing when you're not, when you're doing your alone time. And so, but if you're, if you're a kid uh, listening to this and, and reading the book, what should you do first to, to kind of, let's say, I hate to use the phrase, but to go on the right path. And if you're a parent listening to this and you suspect your kids are depressed or anxious, what should you do first? What's the first step? Uh, you know, so I guess for parents to read this book too, no eight-year-old's going to read this book and then suddenly set out on their self-improvement journey and change their lives. So I really want parents to read this book with their kids or for people that don't have kids. Again, I think you could benefit from reading it anyway. And then for parents to develop some common language with your kids. So you can say things like, is that a blue thought or a true thought? And then you guys know what to do with that. And if you can work together and the book certainly shouldn't be a substitute for therapy or getting professional help. If you have a question of whether or not your kid might need help, talk to your physician. Uh, it's a great place to start is to just ask the pediatrician, is this normal? Most doctors have screening tools. They have strategies that they can use to figure out if, if your child might need some professional help. And then my hope for kids is maybe they'll just start with one or two things. You're not going to come up with a a whole bunch of exercises that change your life, but maybe one or two will resonate with you and you start incorporating it into your everyday life. And then once you get those down, you can start incorporating another one or two and just build slowly over time. Um, do you feel like sometimes parents project onto their kids their own problems? Definitely. I see parents that will. I mean, I feel like that happens a lot. I Absolutely. see that. And some parents and are projecting just... their their anxiety onto their kids. Yes. Oh, he worries about everything. Oh, he doesn't actually care about anything. We want him to have more yeah. anxiety. And other parents really work hard to sort of uh, make their unrealized dreams come true. Like, I never got to be an athlete, so I really want my kid to strive it and, and do everything that they can to succeed in athleticism. And they don't even realize it's not even their kid's dream. It's just the parents pushing them to do those things. And how damaging that is for the kids to have to try to fulfill the unfulfilled dreams of their parents. Right. Because they do want to please, I mean, they love you. They want to make you happy. They want to be accepted. And that, yeah, when you put added stress on them like that, it is, it's not fair for them. Yeah. Exactly. So what it's 13 things mentally strong people don't do. This was the first, this was the original. It's a great book. There's 13 things uh, mentally strong women don't do. Now there's the 13 things strong kids do. I forget what the other- There's a parenting um, oh, maybe book. it's parents. Yeah, right. yeah, parenting, which is really great. I really think this is a, a great series to read and it, and it's powerful and it's, and it's up-to-date and it's modern. So, so like Robin, I know when you, when your kids were going through what they were going through, you actually did get one of, you got the seven um, highly effective habits for kids or teenagers. I had my kids, well, my son, because he was older, he, I got him that book before he went through puberty and he, and his best friend. So I figure not just give it to your kids, but give it to your kid's best friend because, you know, they influence each other. So they actually did study, you know, that book. It was highly effective teens, seven habits yeah. of highly effective teens. And they went through uh, the, the book, the workbook and everything. And I tell you, I feel like just from the experience I've had with my three after puberty, I mean, they sort of gel. So if you can get th through to them before they go through puberty, it's just so much easier to help them because after they go through puberty, they're sort of gelled into their self. I don't know how that, I don't know if that's correct, but for me, for my kids, I felt that way that it, they just, they were who they were and they always stayed that way after their puberty. 
And and uh, so, I, but I think that's an example where people have historically parents have been buying these for their kids, and the kids, I I agree with the before the age of twelve or before because the kids still worship the parent and are willing to do what they what they say. After that, it's sort of like people always say, oh, when they were two years old, it's the terrible twos, but it's actually the terrible fourteen through eighteens <laughs> that is the problem. But uh, but that's a really good idea. You should make a workbook. Uh, from these things that parents and kids could do together. Maybe you could even, even if um, your publisher doesn't publish it because it's not in their schedule or whatever, that's something you could even self-publish or something or or sell on your website or, or whatever. Because I think that's really valuable. I think so too. Thanks for the that's idea. It's a bonding thing for parents. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, what's next? You're going on a bunch, you're going to, yeah, you're promoting this from from home. Uh How's the experience of of writing during the pandemic and and marketing it and publishing it? In a lot of ways, it made it a lot easier. I could write because I wasn't traveling and I wasn't doing anything. Yeah. So writing the book was easy. Everything on my schedule was pretty much cleared out. So writing it was easy. Of course, uh, promoting it has its ups and downs. I can't get out and actually do stuff to promote it, but I can be on lots of uh, on-camera things from the living room. So that works out too. Well, it's a great book. And again, maybe I'm just totally selfish and don't even care about my kids, but I, I think I do, but I read this book from my own point of view and how much I should do these exercises that you have in the book. I mean, every chapter has got exercises and questions to ask yourself and, and things to do. And particularly, I just love the, um, uh, they focus on things they have control over, like the exercises in that were, were really great. And, uh, you know, they create their future. Uh, this is all just valuable stuff for adults. And I, and I think it's a real, primal way to learn something is to go over the basics because every year you understand those basics with more and more nuances and you should never forget you're never too old for for the basics in life in a skill in whatever it is you're trying to get good at and so it's just an incredibly valuable book i i love this book and uh you know i'm curious i want to see what the next are have you, here's a here's an idea too you know there's you you obviously the 13 things is becoming a franchise like Don't Sweat the Small Stuff or The Seven Highly Effective Habits. Have you considered, let's say you were hypothetically doing the 13 things mentally strong dentists don't do. You should, um, to, to scale this franchise of books you're writing, you should team up with like a dentist in that case and have the dentist write most of the book, but it's your franchise. So it's Amy Moore and with, you know, Dr. Dentist. And then you could do, you could do like 20 books uh, a year. And, you know, that would probably make sense because obviously I don't, I'm not a dentist. I've never been one. I can't speak to what it would be like to be a dentist. But as I've had people ask me that for specific professions, especially teachers, that's the one I'm getting the most these days is, can you write a book for teachers? So, oh yeah, that's a great one. Right. And so, yeah, I would definitely want to incorporate people from that profession if we were going to talk about that. So workbooks and teaming up with people to scale the franchise because it's a franchise now, not just a you know, even James Patterson with fiction, you know, had co-authors on as co-authors in each book. Uh, no, I just want to say just reading all of these uh, titles, uh, these chapters, it seems like a lot of these things, parents don't allow their kids to actually do it in a way. Right. Because, like what? Well, like adapt to change. Like the parents step in and they sort of don't allow them to experience that or... Um, or even to empower themselves. Maybe the parents sort of step in and, and do it for the kids. Um, I mean, I'm just looking at some of these and it seems like 
a lot of parents, like I was a helicopter parent, really don't allow the kids to do these, you know, uh, to, to focus on things that they can control over, you know, I mean, parents always, it seems like a lot of parents, um, do the thinking for the kids because they want them to do it a certain way. I think a lot of times it's the parents. Right. And that's why I hope parents read this book too, so that they can coach their kids and guide them along the way rather than stepping in and, and becoming a a shield instead of just a guide or that they can help their kids persist by cheering them on rather than pushing them as far as they can. Yeah. I mean, it's also like when you go to a dog trainer, you know, you, you want to, you think that you just go and you drop your dog off, but the really the good trainers are training you to train your dog. Not that I'm comparing kids and you know, parents as dogs and dog trainers, but... Because dogs are smarter. Yeah, you know, but it just seems that way. It's like we need to train the parents to so that they can actually train the kids. Yes, right? and that's so important. As a therapist, I would have parents bring their kids in who acted out and they would say, you know, fix him. Well, I can only do so much in an hour, but you're with each child so many more hours of the week. If I train you on how to train them or how to manage their behaviors, it'll be way more effective than if I just sit and talk to your child for one hour a week. Right. And it's like the parents are the ones that really need to go through therapy sometimes because the kids are pretty much, you know, they're, they're just a, a, a blank canvas that we get. And what we put into that canvas is so we create them. So sometimes I remember some of my kids' friends would come over. I didn't even need to meet the parents. I could only imagine what the parents were like because they are a reflection of you, you know, and that's important to realize. You yes. can tell a lot by someone's kids. <laughs> yes. And so if we can help support parents in becoming mental strength coaches for kids, I think we'll have we'll do a lot better in That's terms right. of helping kids become stronger. Right. Well, you know, Amy Morin, you know, once again, always such such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I always feel like we could talk for hours and hours. You know, your book, 13 Things Strong Kids Do. I loved it. I want to read the subtitle again because I love the subtitle too. Very, very rarely do I like a subtitle, but think big, feel good, act brave is really good advice. And, and, and it's always great to say, oh, it's really good advice for kids, but act brave, that sounds almost corny for an adult to think I need to be braver, but it's really, it's really just good advice. I, I love this subtitle. So, um, you know, and by the way, the, the book looks beautiful. It's, the illustrations are great. The way that the fonts are is beautiful. So I think this is like, good job. And, and look, write another book soon. But you know, we always, we always come on anyway, whenever we have stuff to talk about. So, so come on the podcast anytime. And, but good luck with this book. It's coming out today, the day we release this podcast. And uh, I, hope it, I hope it's a big book. Thank you, James. Very welcome. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.